Well, let's find our places and open to Luke chapter 4. And let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you that you were tempted in all points such as we are yet without sin. You didn't live in a man and somehow have it any easier in any way than we do. And thank you that you emptied yourself and humbled yourself and became obedient even to the point of death. And Father, thank you that you have given us your word that tells us all these things so that we might know how we should live. Help us to see you this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. So last week in Luke chapter 3, uh, toward the, the middle of the chapter, because we've got that long genealogy at the end, Jesus gets baptized. Now, two things happen when Jesus gets baptized. First of all, there's something that appears. And what is it that appeared? Okay, you have the Holy Spirit coming down uh, as a dove and lighting on Jesus, right? So you've got the Holy Spirit uh, coming and resting on Christ. And then what is the other thing that happens? God speaks. And... God publicly, because again, this is an audible voice, this is my beloved Son. And so you have the Holy Spirit coming down and resting on Christ, and you have the public proclamation that Jesus is the Son of God, second person of the Godhead. Now Luke is going to take those two themes there and he is going to carry that across here into the next event that occurs, which is immediately thereafter. So Jesus gets baptized. He's publicly acknowledged as the Son of God. And immediately, he's filled with the Spirit. This word that's used, in fact, I guess we should probably read. Um, chapter 4, verse 1. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led around by the Spirit, or in the Spirit, in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days, and when they had ended, he became hungry. And the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone. And he led him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, I will give you all this domain and its glory, for it has been handed over to me, and I give it to whomever I wish. Therefore, if you worship before me, it shall all be yours. Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And he led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. 
Jesus answered and said to him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished every temptation, he left him until an opportune time. And so Jesus is now full of the Spirit. And this word for full means to be completely full, to be completely occupied. There's no empty space. And so Jesus is full of the Spirit. So what does that mean? David, Dave spoke of this last week in the message. What does it mean to be full, to be filled with the Spirit? And what does it look like? So what is it, first of all? And second, what does it look like? To be under the control of, to be dominated by. That's what it is to be filled with the Spirit. What does it look like? Okay, so the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, all of those. What else? Pardon me? Cooperating. Cooperating. Okay, come up with another word for that. Obedience. Obedience. The Spirit-filled life is a life that is marked by obedience. That's what it looks like. It is not wild and crazy. All right? It doesn't mean doing all kinds of things that some people might consider unusual. It's a life that is characterized by obedience. And that is what Jesus models. And in fact, he's going to model it in the wilderness. Now, it's interesting, this is very, very Jewish. Why would Jesus, wandering in the wilderness for 40 days, be Jewish. That's where Israel wandered for 40 days. 40 years, right? Israel was in the wilderness for 40 years. Interesting. What happened in the wilderness for 40 years while they're wandering around? What are they being supplied? Every day. Manna. God is providing food for them. Every day while they're in the wilderness. That's right. And so again, as they're walking as they're walking around there, this is God's chosen people, right? They had been baptized, so to speak, in the Red Sea. And they come out, and yet the vast, vast, vast majority of them are what? They're disobedient. They don't believe God. In in Numbers, in the book of Numbers, when God says, these ten times you have tested me, I used to think, okay, well, is that a little divine hyperbole? No. So I'm, I'm going through and I'm counting them. And there were ten of them. Then I looked in a MacArthur study Bible and found them listed in the bottom. <laughs> but you know what's interesting? I did my own digging, so I remember it. So again, there's, there's a benefit. You know, study Bibles are great, and they are. I'm not, believe me, I'm not dissing study Bibles in any way, shape, or form. But it's no substitute for doing your own study and doing your own digging. So Jesus 
He's filled with the Spirit. And who initiates this confrontation with Satan? Does Satan initiate it? What's it say? How'd Jesus end up in the desert? He's led by the Spirit. God's initiating contact here. God takes Christ. The Spirit leads Christ out into the wilderness. And this idea of him being tempted, it's a, it's, it's a perfect participle. And so the idea is, is that this is something that's happening for all the 40 days. The ones here at the end, those are just the three at the end. He's been tempted by the devil for all during the 40 days that he's been in the desert, in the wilderness. He's not eating anything. Um, I've never gone 40 days without eating. Uh, look at me and you can tell that I've never gone 40 days without eating. I am told, and I have, I've, I've gone 10. And I actually wasn't hungry. I hadn't gone long enough. The idea being, when he gets all of a sudden, when he starts getting hungry, uh, it's not like, you know, I feel like I, I need... He's hungry. Because after that point, what starts setting in? Well, yeah, you start... That's, that's when you start starving. All right? So he gets hungry. And the devil sees an opportunity. So the devil says to him, if you're the son of God, and this is one of those that I think is probably appropriate to be since. The devil knows who Jesus is. Okay? There's no question about that. In fact, we're going to see here in the text later in this chapter when Jesus starts casting out demons, they know who he is. There's no question in their mind as to who Christ is. And so the devil knows. So look, since you're the son of God, What's he acknowledging here by saying that he's the Son of God? What does he possess as the Son of God? What's one of the things that he possesses? He possesses, pardon me? Authority, absolutely, and power. He possesses creativity, divine creativity. He's the one who spoke the word and everything came into being, right? So, Jesus, since you're the son of God, and since you're starving right now, how about you command these stones to be made bread? What's the temptation here? Pardon me? Okay. What would Jesus be doing if he commanded rocks to be made bread. Okay, obeying the devil. Okay, he'd be demonstrating his deity. I think it's interesting that Satan says, tell this stone. Satan understood how God creates by speaking. Yep. And? See, okay. Does Jesus have the ability to do what Satan is suggesting? Yes, he does. The temptation here, Jesus, 
Will you use your divine power for your own benefit? Will you use your divine power, something that you possess and rightfully possess, will you use that to satisfy your own desires? Gunner? Well, yeah, men can't do that. Why is Jesus being subjected to temptation? Remember, the Spirit led him out here. Why? Okay, he's being tempted by the devil so that later on in the book of Hebrews, when it talks about because he was tempted, he is able to come to the aid of those who are being tempted, right? And so again, it's he is doing these things to, he's enduring the same conditions that we are, in fact, quite more, frankly. How much, what's the limit on the temptation that you and I face? There's a limit on it, isn't there? There's a speed governor. That's right. God limits the temptation so that, because he says, I, I'm only going to give you what you can bear so that no one is ever going to be able to come back and say, you know what, I got overwhelmed. No, you didn't. There was a way of escape or there was a way of withstanding. You had that. You chose to submit to the temptation. And so here, Jesus didn't get that. He was eating the full enchilada every time, every time out the gate, with consequences that you and I can't even begin to fathom, right? If Jesus sins, what happens to us? The world is lost. And so again, he, he, he's, he's facing the full brunt every single time. Emery. Yeah. So somehow this is coming out down the road so that, you're right, so that Luke has it so that he can record it. So again, the idea here, Jesus, will you use your divine power to satisfy your own desires? And Jesus says, no. He is going to depend on his Father for his provision. He is going to depend on God for his needs. Now later, when you get over to the book of Matthew, it talks about how God knows what we need before we even know to ask, right? That goes all the way back to the garden. How did God demonstrate that in the garden? Adam names all the animals. They're all paraded before him and he names them all, right? And there was not a suitable helper found for Adam. And God says, it's not good for the man to be alone. Adam hasn't even figured that out yet. But God knows. And God has a divine solution to that, right? So he takes the rib, he forms Eve, and brings her and presents her to the man. 
which also demonstrated what else? Adam, I know what you need before you do, and what? I'm the, yeah, I can provide it. I'm the source for your need to be met. That's me. And so, don't be taking things into your own hand there. So is Jesus going to trust God for his provision? And that answer is yes. And how does Jesus counter Satan's temptation? He quotes from Deuteronomy, and it's interesting, all three of these quotations are from Deuteronomy, and when did Israel get Deuteronomy? While they were in the wilderness. So this is all wilderness stuff. Man shall not live on bread alone. Now Matthew adds something to that. Man shall not live on bread alone, but by every word that proceeds forth from the mouth of God, right? So, Satan, you're tempting me to do something that is not right. And in fact, it's not even what's most necessary. Later on, Jesus is going to say, my meat, my food, is to what? Do the will of him who sent me. So again, does Jesus know who he is? Yeah, he does. He knows who he is, and he knows what his mission is. He's got his orders, and he is marching according to those orders. So, man shall not live on bread alone. So, he takes him up, and where it is, where he takes him is not given. How it is that the devil shows him the kingdoms of the world, that isn't given, because... That's not important. What is important? Satan shows him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment. And he says to him, I will give you all this domain and its glory, for it has been handed over to me, and I give it to whomever I wish. Now, is that true? Has Satan been given... Dominion over people. Okay, I've got a no. Okay, so I have a yes. The prince of the power of the air. <laughs> The ruler of this world. So, and in fact, in, in Revelation, what do, you, what, what do we see? You see there's a beast. Satan gives him power in order to be able to go and do things. Now, does Satan have ultimate control over these kingdoms? No, he does not. So this promise, this statement that Satan is saying here, He's making a promise. He's making a statement of fact that he can't deliver on. It sounds like a lie. Well, it is. And what are the best lies based in? Truth. All right? I remember hearing, I mean as a little kid, I'm talking five, six years old. I know you can't believe I can remember something back that far. Satan will use a lake of truth to hide a pint of poison. And so the idea here is, does Satan have power over kingdoms? Yes, he does. It doesn't 
That's right. Sam's point, he's he's the manager, he's the steward. He doesn't have the actual title deed to these kingdoms. Now, what is Satan? Now, first of all, is Jesus going to receive what Satan was offering him? Yes, he is. Every knee is going to bow. Every tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That is going to happen. God is going to give Jesus the nations of the earth as his reward for his obedience. So what Satan is offering him, Jesus is going to get. What's Satan offering him? First off, back up. Why is Jesus going to receive that from the Father? There's an event. Christ is going to end up receiving those as a reward for the cross. What is Satan offering Christ? Well, it's a short time offer. What's he offering him? You can have the reward without having to pay the price. You can have this without the cross. Without having to wait. Without having to wait. Instant gratification. Yeah. So again, you know what we're what we live with in our world: instant gratification. Jesus, you don't have to be tortured. You don't have to be mocked and humiliated. You don't have to have your father turn his face away from you. You don't have to suffer all of those things. I'll give you what your father would give you. You just have to worship me. I'm not sure that Satan knew process of resurrection and how that was. That was the secret. That was the secret at that time. Well, okay, so for the tape, the the comment is, he's not, uh, you know, can we be sure that the devil knew the actual process of the resurrection? I'll say this, the devil knows how this ends. Devil knows a lot more than that. But he doesn't. Well, he doesn't know every. He doesn't know all of God's secrets. Well, he knows enough but because he wants to undermine the credibility of Christ, and he knows that Christ can be bought. He's undermined Christ's credibility. Well, if, if Jesus doesn't go to the cross, what happens? Why did he get here? Why did he come? Right? Later on, he's going to pray, Father, what am I going to say? Deliver me from this hour? This hour is why I came here. Do the demons know? Um, well, flip down here. We're going to get there today. But flip down to verse 34. He meets a man with an unclean spirit. 
the spirit starts crying out with a loud voice. That's shrieking, by the way. That is screaming. Let us alone. What business do we have with these, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? Where do demons end up? They end up in the lake of fire. Where's the holding cell for demons now? There's a holding cell now for a number of demons. The bottomless pit or the abyss that you see referenced in the book of Revelation. They know where things end up. They know that they lose. They know that they get judged. And, and what else do they know? There's no hope of salvation for angels. Angels who fall, they're fallen. No, no mulligans. No do-over. They also know that he is the Holy One of God. Exactly. And so here again, you can. I'll, I'll make the offer. Now again, he can't carry it out. The fact is, Jesus, will you short-circuit your mission? Will you, for your ease, so that you will not have to suffer those things that you're going to have to suffer? Will you bypass that? Now, again, when it comes to the cross, whose idea is the cross? The Father. Here's what we're going to do. The Son is going to make it happen. In the Spirit, He's going to make it work with all of us. And so that is the plan. It's been the plan since before the foundation of the world. So Jesus, will you take the easy way out? And, again, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve Him only. What is the implication in that verse? You shall worship the Lord your God and serve Him only. There's an implication there. Okay, the command would be to obey only Him. The idea is, is that what you worship, you serve. So, so, now Jesus is going to have something to say about that later too, isn't he? A man cannot serve two masters. You cannot serve God and money. Cannot be done. And so, here again, Jesus goes back. I've got an answer for you on this one, Satan. You worship God alone. Period. That's just what Satan would not do. No, Satan doesn't because he worships himself. And he's hearing this from the Son of God. Yeah, if he's got one. All right, now he continues. He led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple. Okay. On Temple Mount, there's a corner of Temple Mount that is over the Kidron Valley, uh, looking over toward the, the Mount of Olives. And so the, the thought here is that he's got him over here at 
the edge of the precipice looking down into the Kidron. And it's, it would be a fairly good drop um, coming down off of the wall. Has him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you're the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, now Satan is doing what? Okay, if you're going to quote scripture at me, I'll go back. I'm going to grab a messianic psalm that's about you. And I'm going to use it on you. He will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands they will bear you up so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. So, Jesus, will you act presumptuously? Now, there is a comment. (laughs) There's a phrase that is used often in Christendom. You gotta take a step of faith. You just kind of gotta launch out there. That's basically what Satan's telling Jesus. Just take a step of faith because God's gonna catch you. You know God's gotta catch you. God promised in the in the scriptures that He would catch you. So take a leap. Now, why doesn't Jesus do this? Okay, it's not in the plan. There's one. Okay, so you don't test God. So what does it mean to test God? What does that mean? You don't take him for granted. You don't back God into a corner. You don't treat God like he's a genie. I'm going to rub on the on the on the lamp and here God comes out and he's here to save the day. And he's here to save the day because I put him in a place where he has to save the day. So this idea, Sam mentioned Gideon and his fleece. This is going to be embarrassing. In fact, I'm not sure I should say this because now it's going to be on tape. (laughs) I remember when I was, I think I was a freshman in high school. And I had discovered something as a freshman in high school called girls. Now, none of you knew me when I was a teenager. I was shy. Um, guys in the fire department guys in the fire department said that when I got to their station they couldn't get me to talk. By the time I left they couldn't get me to shut up. <laughs> I grew up in the fire department, okay? I remember I'd lost my jacket. And so I and I'm I'm walking to school and I'm having a very spiritual discussion with God. You know, Lord, I'll tell you what, I'm gonna put a fleece out in front of you. Um, if this girl is the one that you would like and you want me to pursue, then let me find my coat at school today. And if it's this one over here, then let this happen over here. I'm not married to either one of those women. All right? And so, <laughs> don't be presumptuous. Don't back God into a corner to where all of a sudden God has to come in and to rescue you to save the day. Emery? Trying to, I mean, him over to be his 
Oh, now, Emory, you just made a comment that, you know, when we pray, we're not supposed to be trying to get God to come over to our way of thinking. We're supposed to be going over to his. That is absolutely true, which is why most praying offered by most people is worthless. Look, why do we ask for most of the things that we ask for? It's, it's very often. Terry's been sick. She's had a high fever for three weeks. When you have a high fever, how do you feel? You don't want to move. You don't want to get up. You don't want to do anything because you're miserable. Now, is it na what would be the natural prayer request for someone who's got a high fever? Take it away. Does anybody ever ask the question, okay, Lord, why have you brought this to me? What are you trying to accomplish here? Honestly, how many of us, how many of us, that's the first question that we ask? Okay, so now look, here's, here's the thing, all right? Hebrews 5.8 talks about how Jesus learned obedience through the things he suffered, okay? How that works out practically is that here you have circumstances that for Jesus have pretty severe consequences. He knows that. Is he going to submit his will to the Father's will? Now remember, the Spirit-filled life is a life that's marked by obedience. There's another word that you could substitute for obedience. It's a life of subjection. Jesus, living as a man, is consistently, day by day, hour by hour, he is submitting his desires to those of God. Day in, day out. And that's what these temptations are attacking. Jesus, will you submit yourself to the Father's will? It's going to cost you. You're going to pay a price for that. And that is absolutely true. Yet, he is also going to accomplish so many other things that can only be accomplished that way. So, and again, I think someone made the, the, the comment earlier. He directly deals with this one, right? 
you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Now, Jesus here was also faced with something else. The devil's using scripture. Is he using it rightfully? No, he's not. He's twisting it to try to get Jesus to do something. Do you and I run into that? Oh, well, yeah, we do. In fact, it's starting to become a little more popular. It amazes me that people who reject God's word on a daily basis use it to try to convince other people how they ought to act. And so we need to understand, so what do we need personal application here out of all of this? You have Jesus here enduring temptation, and he's dealing with temptation. He is responding to temptation. What does this say for us? How did Jesus take on temptation? He goes to the Word. So, what does that tell us about Jesus' relationship to God's Word? First off, he has, to do, he has to have something first of all. He's got to know it. Okay? He has to know it. Now, for Jesus, since he is the Word of God, all right, he's going to know it. Knowing is knowing enough. No, what else do you need to see? Knowing it, say that again. You got to understand it. What does it mean? So I know what it says. Now, do I understand what it means? And then do it. Nike, right? Just do it. Is that Nike? Yeah. Okay. I thought maybe I was getting my metaphors mixed up again. So again, do I know the Word of God? Do I understand it? And then how do I put it into practice? And most of all, will I bow my will, my desires, my quote-unquote felt needs? Will I submit those to God? Chapter 17 is such a wonderful executive summary of Jesus' relation to the Father and how he mm -hmm. understands he has the right to take action you know, as the Son of God, but he's working with the Father all the way through. He is, and the high priestly prayer is absolutely that. See, in the garden, we tend to think, I tend to think, you know, the greatest example of Jesus' humility is when he gets to the garden and, you know, Father, if there is any other way, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours, right? He comes under God's will. The fact of the matter is, the reason that Jesus was able to pray that in Gethsemane is that has been his pattern of life all along. All along it's been that way. And so when we think about, you know, in the big moment, I want to be able to be faithful to Christ. Do you want to know how to be faithful to Christ in the big moment? Yeah, you learn how to be faithful to him and all the little ones that lead up to it. 
It's a life that's marked by obedience. And so here he's doing it here. All right, Satan, you're offering me a way to do this without the cross. No. Father's plan is the cross. That's what we're going to do. I can go another day being hungry. I don't have to use something that mankind, they don't have that opportunity now, do they? If I'm hungry, I do not have the ability to speak a word and just create something out of nothing. I do not have that ability. Going through the drive-thru and speaking the word and making an order doesn't count. All right? So when the devil had finished every temptation, he left him until an opportune time. So, what is Satan watching for with Christ? He's, he's like the cat. Perched and watching the bird. I'm just waiting. Sooner or later, you're going to forget I'm here or whatever, and I'm going to be able to get you. He's watching. By the way, we understand that now, don't we? Satan prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. So again, Satan takes off for now, but he's going to be back. And Jesus returned to Galilee, verse 14, in the power of the Spirit. So again, what's, what's a constant theme that Luke is pounding on when it comes to Christ? He is full of the Holy Spirit. He is controlled by the Holy Spirit. The things that he is doing is under the influence of the Holy Spirit, meaning that he is submitting himself to the will of God, and that's what, do, that's what dominates him. What would the Father have me do here? How would the Father have me speak? What's the right time? We're going to run into that here quickly if we hustle. And news about him spread through all the surrounding district. And he began teaching in their synagogues and was praised by all. So now remember, when he's 12, we saw him as a student. That's the last time we see him that way. From here on out, he's the teacher. He's the teacher. And he came to Nazareth, where he'd been brought up. And as was his custom... He entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read. Now, all right, we don't have time to talk about a Jewish synagogue meeting. This was customary. And so there are people who would be asked to read, like we do in our worship service. There are men who are asked to read. And so that would happen in the synagogue. And Jesus, he goes in, as was his custom, so Jesus is in the synagogue regularly. He stands up to read. He's, he's on the Sabbath, stood up to read. And the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. So he's given the scroll. If you ever go to a synagogue, you'll see that the, the scripture is on these large scrolls. They're, they're about three or four feet deep. And they're literally bound up on, on a piece of wood. And you open that, you roll it out. And they, in fact, they have it to where you have a stylus so that your finger is not touching. The, the, the scripture, and you go along and you would read. So he's given the scroll. Who chose the passage? 
Jesus did. It's, it's, he's, the scroll is handed to him. He opens it up. And he's the one who's choosing out of Isaiah. Now, Isaiah could fit on a single scroll. So here he is. He's given this thing. And if you're talking about chapter 61, that's kind of toward the end. So roll this thing open, roll this thing open, and boom, we get to the passage that he wants. And he opened the book and found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And he stops there. There's another piece to that verse. There's, in fact, and it's a continuation of the thought. And the, the way the verse ends is, and the day of vengeance of our Lord. He stops before that. So, he's quoting from Isaiah 61 and from Isaiah 58. So, closes up the scroll, gives it back to the attendant. It was customary for the word of God to be read standing. Teaching would be done while seated. So he hands the scroll back. He goes over and he sits down and everybody is waiting to hear what he's got to say. This is the idea. You know what? I hope that I, I hope that we listen to sermons with this kind of anticipation. Their eyes are fixed on him. So you can hear, I mean, this is drama. You can hear a pin drop inside this place. They're all waiting. What's he going to say? And boy, are they not going to be disappointed. And he began to say to them, today, by the way, I need to back up one more thing here. That passage is a messianic passage. And every person in that room would know that. We're talking about Messiah. Here's Jesus' words. Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Well, okay, what a privilege to be in the room to hear that. Yeah? As long as you believe. Otherwise, what condemnation did you just incur? Right? Well, it's not just the condemnation that they incur, because I was just in the presence of the Son of God. I was just in the presence of the Messiah, and I chose to ignore him. So again, why is it that God's able to say, by the way, in Isaiah, right? Isaiah 55. My word accomplishes its purpose, right? It will not return to me void. It will not return to me without accomplishing the purpose whereto I sent it. So what does that mean? When God's word goes forth, one of two things is going to happen. People will respond to that in a positive manner. They will believe, and believe in the biblical sense, right? Believing that is characterized by action. Belief that's characterized by obedience. Or, and if they believe, they will be justified. Or they will not believe. And if they choose not to believe... What happens? 
they're condemned. And they're condemned by the very word that they heard. And so it is. It would be an incredible... You know, I would have loved to have been in the room to see that. As long as I would come to faith. <laughs> Otherwise, I'm not going to be happy. Gunner. You have a great advantage over them right now if you were in that room by what you know. And they did not know. And they did not have any reason or idea to think that Jesus, the carpenter's son, did. Oh. oh, yeah. In fact, we're going to get there right now. We're going to get there right now. Today, the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all were speaking well of him and wondering at the gracious words which were falling from his lips. And then they were saying, isn't this Joseph's kid? He's the local carpenter's kid, right? We know him. And he said to them, no doubt you will quote this proverb to me, Physician, heal yourself. Whatever we heard was done at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. So now, what does that tell us? This is not chronological. Luke is not, again, giving an exhaustive history. They know full well that Jesus has been doing stuff at Capernaum. They've heard the rumors. He's already been throughout much of Galilee. They've got an idea as to what's going on. Because remember, we just read earlier, his fame is spreading throughout the local district. So, hey, do it here. And he said to them, truly I say to you, no prophet is welcome in his hometown. Yep. Oh yeah, now Jesus is not afraid to use his deity to understand and know what people are thinking around him so that he can just, we're going to save some time here. I'm not going to wait for you to say this. I'm just going to tell you and we'll speak to it right now. It's going to get worse though. No prophet's welcome in his hometown, but I say to you in truth, this is one of those truly, trulys. There were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the sky was shut up for three and a half years, for three years and six months, when a great famine came over all the land. And yet Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. Now, Elijah lives at the time of a particular king. Who was that king? Ahab. Who was Ahab married to? Jezebel. Where was Jezebel from? Jezebel was from Sidon. So one of the most wicked women that's ever been. God sends Elijah to her home country to meet a widow. There's plenty of widows in Israel. God sends Elijah to a Gentile. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of Elisha the prophet. And none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. Who was Naaman? Syria? 
He's a general in the Syrian army. Naaman was a terrorist. They would come in to Israel and perform raids and take people away. Remember, how did Naaman even know to go to Elisha? Yeah, He'd gone into Israel on one of his little terrorist raids and brought back a servant girl. Ripped her off. And she's the one, hey, you're a leper. I know a guy who could heal you of that. He's in Israel. There were plenty of lepers in Israel. So what's Jesus saying to them? You were so, again, Israel in the time of Elijah and Elisha, how would you characterize them as a nation? Lost. Are they humble? No. Are they obedient? No. No, they are apostate. And so, you know what, Israel? You're so bad that I'm going to send my miracles to Gentiles. Now, he's preaching this to a bunch of Jews who just heard him say who he was. And what's their response? Oh, they were so great. They were so praising just a few minutes ago. And now, what do they want to do? They want to murder him. I don't think they're being very receptive to the message here. And all the people in the synagogue were filled with rage when they heard these things. How dare you say something like that to us? And they got up and drove him out of the city and led him to the brow of the hill on which their city had been built in order to throw him down the cliff. Uh, before you stone somebody, you would usually take them up, you push them off a cliff so that they're kind of dazed and they can't move while you're, while you're hitting them with rocks to kill them. But passing through their midst, he went his way. Luke says this in such a matter-of-fact way, right? They want to kill him. And Jesus just wanders between them and just walks away because it's not his day. It's not his time. And they can't do anything to him before it's time. So, Yep. Yep. He 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 just goes. And by the way, we don't. I don't believe we ever read of Jesus back in Nazareth after this. Nazareth had its time, and they let it go by. So, verse thirty-one. He came down to Capernaum, the city of Galilee. So here again, Luke is writing to Gentiles and describing, hey, listen, this is, this is in Galilee. And he was teaching them on the Sabbath. And they were amazed at his teaching, for his message was with authority. So again, he's back here. He, he's the teacher. And in the synagogue, there was a man possessed by the spirit of an unclean demon. And he cried out with a loud voice, 
Let us alone. What business do we have with each other, Jesus of Nazareth? If you come to destroy us, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Now, is the demon right? Yes. The demon knows who he is. Jesus isn't interested in the testimonials of demons. He doesn't want to have his he doesn't want to be identified with this guy, with this spirit. So he rebukes him, saying, Be quiet and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in the midst of the people, he came out of him without doing him any harm. And amazement came upon them all, and they began talking with one another, saying, What is this message? For with authority and power, he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. Now, there's going to be another group in a different setting, but they're going to have a similar response. Think about the disciples in the boat, in the middle of the storm. And Jesus speaks a word, and there's no more storm. And what's the response of the disciples? Who is this guy? Who is this guy? So again, this is, this is one of these where you're just kind of stopped in your tracks. Who is this? And the report about him was spreading into every locality in the surrounding district. So, people are talking about Jesus. They're talking about him to their neighbors. They're talking about him to people that they come in contact with in business. And so, everything is spreading out. You've got you to see this guy. He doesn't talk like the normal people in the synagogue talk. And he does things that no one else can do. So, this is on the same day. So he's just cast out this demon in the middle of the synagogue service. So, verse 38, Then he got up and left the synagogue and entered Simon's home. Now, Simon's mother-in-law was suffering from a high fever. Sounded like uh, Terry needed a visit here, like, like Simon's mother-in-law got. And they asked him to help her. So now, what do we have? I know enough about Jesus to know that he can do things that other people cannot do. And we all know Peter. Peter's not shy. And so, Lord, will you help my mother-in-law? And the idea is, it's, it's they. So the idea, it's the family. The family's asking him, is there anything that you can do? You mean the first pope was married? Yeah, the first pope was married. Yeah. Yes, he was. And standing over her, he rebuked the fever, and it left her, and she immediately got up and waited on them. Now, so there's a couple of characteristics here for healings by Christ. And in fact, they're characteristic of the healings that were done by the apostles after Christ. Number one, they're in public. They're in front of people. This isn't something that's done behind the curtain. Number two, they're immediate. Number three, they're complete. She gets up. There's no residual effect. And she immediately does what any Jewish woman in that circumstance would have done. Start waiting on the men that are there. And so, boom, she's up and she's at it. 
and two, they were verifiable conditions. Verifiable now, conditions? I have a backache. Yes. Nobody can tell. Yes. If you got a fever, it's easy to see. Exactly. And so, you know, Jesus is healing lepers. The guy's face was just falling off five minutes ago. Now he's been restored. So again, verifiable. Good point. While the sun was setting, it's the same day. While the sun was now, now, while the sun was setting, so it's the Sabbath. What? When, when is the Sabbath? When? When does it actually run? Runs from sunset on Friday till sunset on Saturday. So Friday night and Saturday during the day, that's the Sabbath. What are you not supposed to be doing on the Sabbath? You're not supposed to be doing work. So you're not supposed to be carrying loads. You're not supposed to be doing things that are done on every other day. So they waited until sunset. And now they know where Jesus is. They've heard the rumors. So while the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him. So all of a sudden, ground zero for healing has just become where? Peter's house. So here, Peter's people start showing up. And he laying his hands on each one of them, he was healing them. Demons also were coming out of many shouting, again shrieking, you are the son of God, but rebuking them, he would not allow them to speak because they knew him to be the Christ. When day came, what's the implication here? Jesus has probably been doing this all night. It's like Grass Valley. There's a lot of sick people in Grass Valley because most everybody's got a medicinal marijuana permit. There were a lot of sick people in Capernaum. Not anymore. Isn't it interesting how many times we read of demon possession in the time of Jesus? With multiple different effects of how the demon affected people. So day comes, Jesus left and went to a secluded place. Can you imagine? What do the current faith healers do? Exactly. Where's the camera? What's Jesus doing? I'm going to find some place where there's nobody around. So I can talk to Dad. The crowds were searching for him and they came to him and tried to keep him from going away from them. Boy, why, why, you know, yeah, we want to keep him. This guy's better than any any doctor. But he said to them, I must preach the kingdom of God to the other cities also, for I was sent for this purpose. This is another one of these must statements that Jesus makes. Jesus lived a life of obligation and duty. And it was duty to who? Ultimately the Father. Who, was the benef- who were the beneficiaries of that 
service. You and me. The crowds at that point. I must preach the kingdom to the other cities also. Because this is why I was sent. So, Jesus knows who he is. He knows his mission. And he will not be deterred. He will not be blocked. He will not be diverted. He's going to stay on track. And he's going to stay on schedule. So he kept on preaching in the synagogues of Judea. And so he's starting to he's starting to branch out a little more now. It's not just Galilee. It's into the district around Galilee as well. Questions? Okay, we are done in Luke for the summer. So starting next Sunday, there's going to be a bunch of one-offs that are going to be done. There's just going to be one Sunday school class down in the main building. And um, there's going to be a number of different topics that get covered over the next couple of months. And then we will start back up in, I think it's late August or early September. i got to go back and look at the schedule. So let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you were always about serving the Father, always about obeying, never about seeking your own comfort, never about seeking your own convenience, how you lived a life of service. And Father, how we need to to have that mindset, that we would live like you did, that we would be willing to be poured out on behalf of others, that we would live our lives in service of others, in service of you. And so, Father, help us. I pray that you would, you would cause us to be filled and dominated by your Spirit. That we would lead a life of obedience as we should. Help us to know you rightly. That we may obey you rightly. That we may worship you rightly. In Christ's name, amen.